Hello, my name is Adam Eason and welcome to episode 9 of Hypnosis Weekly. friends and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a tumultuous veritable gem of a show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with head hacking co-founder, hypnotherapist, trainer, performer and author, the multi-talented, extraordinary Anthony Jackwin. Then I'll be dipping briefly into the post bag this week instead of looking at the hypnosis in the news stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Anthony Jackwin this week. He and I will be discussing some of Anthony's favourite professional practical techniques and we'll get some major insight into the evolution of Anthony's current approach to therapy, the self and hypnosis. We'll round things off with the hypnosis factoid of the week before I bid you farewell once again. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. You can add your thoughts, comments, and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. Now, first of all today, then, is this week's interview. It's tough to know where to begin, really. Anthony Jacquin offers the world of hypnosis what I can only describe, really, as the David Tennant effect. As Doctor Who, David Tennant somehow united staunch Whovian geek males in their late 40s with cooing teenage girls, all under the umbrella of respect and enjoyment of a rebranded TV show. Doctor Who won awards and gained a mass appeal that, you know, it remained cool, but also widened its appeal, as I say. It's a sense of uniting people that really rings true here. Anthony unites performers, therapists, science geeks and those of a more spiritual bent and has influenced me greatly with how he does that. He talks in the interview about networking and truly he reigns supreme at doing this, travelling the world, always opting for real-life human interaction, getting together and meeting people, offering them his knowledge, his insight, his experience and his humour. I first met him a few years ago and over the years I've come to think of him as one of the loveliest people that I've had the pleasure to encounter in this field and outside of it too. He is also incredibly engaging, uses language in a way that is a real joy to listen to. I thought I was going to struggle to ever match some of the sheer volume as well as information content that the early episodes of this podcast has offered. The bar was raised high by those who appeared up until now, in my opinion. 
Yet what is offered here today is of such high value and quantity across a broad spectrum uh, of, of, of different things that many professionals in the hypnosis field are really going to derive great gain from. Um, I was taken aback during editing and upon my own reflection of this episode. You may welcome it, but there is not so much of me talking in this week's episode of Hypnosis Weekly. Turn up the volume, sip on your tea and enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me the one and only Mr. Anthony Jacquin. Welcome to Hypnosis Weekly Ant. Thanks for the warm welcome. Um, so, so let's let's get straight into it. Um, I'm with the interview part of today. Tell tell us a little bit about your background. You know, how did you get into this field, and uh, how have you ri- arrived at where you are now? Tell us a little bit about the journey. Okay. Um, well. I got into it, I was introduced to hypnosis back in 1995 by my father, Freddie Jackwin. He had always run his own business, you know, some kind of sales of of something, a product or a service. He was a kind of self-starter, self-motivated kind of guy. I was a bit more of a hippie teenager staying up all (laughs) night, going to to late night parties. But um, as... I was going through those teenage years and he was reading books on self-improvement. He'd often kind of hand them to me. And I think one of the first to have an impact was the forgotten classic, The Lazy Man's Way to Riches, mm. which um, was advertised in newspapers and things. But when I when I reflect on that now, it kind of described a classic process of change, kind of uh, setting out goals without reference to being realistic and looking at your resources and that kind of stuff. Um, so I had some interest in, or at least a concept, an idea from my father that you could change, that you could achieve things that you wanted to. Um, in the 90s, he stumbled across Anthony Robbins' Unlimited Power, gave me and my brother a, a copy. Yeah. Um, that led him to, you know, Bandler and Grinder's NLP, upon which much of Anthony Robbins' practical stuff would seem to be based. Um, that led him to Milton Erickson. It's kind of a classic path I'm outlining here for yeah, yeah. many modern practitioners. I think a lot of people will, will empathise with that. Yeah, and you know what it's like when you're first reading about Erickson. It's it's completely mind-blowing, and he kind of tested every single boundary, and, 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 and you know, you wondered if all of it was even possible, but, but it seemed to be there in the literature. Um, my dad took about six months off from his business at that time, trained in hypnosis, um, actually a kind of hypnoanalysis miles away from what we're doing now. And then kind of had to tally that, you know, the sort of 12 session approach with, um, the, 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 the facts of his experience that occasionally he was doing a single session with someone and, they were getting rid of a fear or, or overcoming a problem of some kind. So he sent me a letter around that time. I've still got it um, saying that since he'd learned hypnosis, he felt like he was walking around with an invisible cloak on and that yeah. I should get one too. Cool. So I did. He taught me what he knew. Um, I say this was 95. I was at university. I had a few sessions um with smokers and different things and got results in the first three sessions they quit my mind was as blown as theirs um 
I sought training from other people in the next few years and went full-time in 2002. I, perhaps it was fortunate, but it seemed that getting clients was easy. I, I put an advert in the paper, um, got eight customers, and that basically didn't stop for about three and a half thousand. I was kind of wow. immediate. I, I was literally immediately full-time after Brilliant. my first ad. And I mean nine to five, seeing 25 to 30 people a week. Brilliant. Um, so I was quite lucky there. And I was never really into magic and, and uh, performance, um, but developed an interest in it around that kind of time. And I think Kev outlined it, a bit of this roadmap in, in his interview with you. Um, I started chatting with people online. Kev was one of them and started had an opportunity to perform and get paid for it, did that and hypnotized someone when I was doing that and just got the bug for it. So in 2004, I did some stage hypnosis training with John Chase and actually met Kev there. And then TV company said, we've got an idea. Can we drop you in Trafalgar Square? And can you survive for a month by hypnotizing people and stealing their things? <laughs> um, which became that little hypno survival clip. It was, yeah. we only ever did two days, but every single thing worked. Brilliant. And that blew the lid on the whole thing for me. It was like, okay, so you can seemingly do anything with this. Um, and I wrote essentially the, the, the method that I used, because we had all sorts of fancy plans about how we were going to lure people into getting involved with the hypnosis and doing bits of mind reading and making them believe all of that fell away it was much more a case of hi i'm a hypnotist let me show you something or just doing it so the the, the method um that became our kind of impromptu method is written up in my book reality is plastic yeah uh, and that was self-published sold like wildfire to magicians worldwide gave us a reputation um, far uh, above our punching weight amongst the world's magicians and, and mystery performers started teaching hypnosis to them and that's you know a big part of what we do now we travel around the world running trainings and teaching people hypnosis um, somewhere amongst all that I you know uh, started running a hypnotherapy training school with my father and uh, yeah that's that's yeah. about it yeah, I mean, we're going to discuss reality as plastic a little bit later on as well. So I'm going to ask you a bit about that. Um, um, but just as a, almost like a precursor to that, you know, t t tell me a bit about where, where you stand as far as hypnosis is concerned. You know, how you define it, um, how you arrived at, at that kind of definition and, and how you go about explaining it, you know, perhaps to people that ask you about it or perhaps to, to clients that, 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 that come with a particular idea. Um, 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 what, what is hypnosis as far as Anthony Jacqueline is concerned? Okay, well, I was um, certainly schooled in the conscious, unconscious model where yeah. you are doing an induction or a process to um, uh, open up or facilitate direct communication with this unconscious. And those terms although the metaphor is uh, doesn't sit too well with me anymore um i find those terms are readily understood by by my therapy clients yeah so for many many years i would have kind of defined it as a process that would allow you to um you know speak directly to your unconscious the part of you that does stuff yeah. that holds all your learnings and, and so on but let me just give you a uh, how I would define hypnosis because I've recently rewritten my book and this would be uh, a, a more accurate definition and then how I would actually uh, speak to you know 
people about it in real terms when they say, oh, what is hypnosis? Because yeah. it's, it's slightly less dry, hopefully. Um, and I've got Kev and his uh, way with words and essays to kind of thank for this definition of hypnosis. Great. So um, hypnosis is a social construct that causes the cognitive processes of automatic imagination. Hypnotic responses are defined by their subjective sensation of automaticity or involuntariness because they lack the knowledge or feeling of intention. In a nutshell, that is how I would define cool. hypnosis. Cool. I mean, anybody listening, go back, rewind that, listen to that a couple of times. Yeah. Um, um, there's, there's so much depth in that. Um, really interesting. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was actually responding to a Gary Turner post that made me kind of really look at it and cut out any word I wasn't unhappy with, like mind. There's no reference to mind in there at all. There's no, no reference to state in there at all. And if you check Gary Turner's blog, which I'm sure you've got a link to, um, he has a what is hypnosis page where he puts his even more succinct definition that he gave you a few weeks back yeah. last week. And um, but and, and he actually unpacks this sentence. It's, it's quoted on there. But it's all in there for me. And I, to be honest, for the first time in uh, however long it is, if God, it's not even 15 years anymore, 19 years, that is a definition I'm happy to stand by. And right. that I would, uh, you know, I, I could talk about all day, but it is all in there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, mean, I really appreciate that. You, you know, certainly arriving at some kind of definition of hypnosis is something that I think people that have, you know, a conscientious approach to this field do, do sometimes have a bit of existential angst over. Yeah. Um, 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 so, you know, it, it's, it's really lovely to hear you say that. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things, you know, we, we get trained in a certain way. We see the stuff working on the training course. We go away and hopefully it works. And you can then just kind of become a bit of a repeater of Dave Elman's definition or someone else's def Ericsson's definition of which there were dozens and dozens. Yeah. Um, but as I say, you know, part of it has just been the examination of what's essential and what's not that Kev and I have been going through the last few years. Um, for me, that's, that's the definition as I say that I can, right. I can stand by right. and I can explain everything with. Um, but when I'm speaking to people and, you know, I, I'm a full-time hypnotist, um, whether it's therapy or performance. So I get asked, uh, every week, if not most days, someone will say, what is hypnosis at some point? Um, and I'll, I'll kind of put it in term in, in, in these kind of terms, I'd say things like, well, hypnosis is a way of changing the way you think and feel and respond in life. You know, it accepts yeah. that your current reality, wherever you're at, is really just a point of view um, based on thoughts and perceptions and beliefs. And that mm. all of your behaviors are just learned habits and responses that can be entirely automatic. And hypnosis is a great way of changing these habits and responses so you can enjoy a, a new reality. And I'll often say that despite appearances, you know, you've probably seen stage hypnosis and it is very real. They're not all acting. But hypnosis is very much a collaborative effort where together we kind of reach out into your creative imagination yeah. and you learn to do and experience things differently. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of um, more palatable version. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, um, you know, there's some journey that's, that's quite clearly gone on. Um, um, 
within within your career to to arrive at that over over that you know, <coughs> number of years um um just tell me you know who's influenced that journey along the way are there are there some books and authors that stand out and that have taught you most have there been some teachers that have been more influential upon you and perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about why they've influenced you and your own development yeah um well in terms of influences there's there's no question that my my dad Freddie Jack is my biggest yeah. influence. Yeah. Um, e even though, you know, we may not even be on the same page and theoretically about how it works or what's going on. Um, what I can't really question is, is the results that he gets. No. And, uh, you know, you, I, I know you've seen this yourself in your own group and you've, yeah. you've kind of had that experience um of, of of seeing him at work he I kind need of to get him on here I, I, at some point in the future i need to get him on here he's one of the most yeah. entertaining speakers that i've ever encountered um, um really and yeah. incredibly hilarious yeah and well, the thing is you know when when we started out um i guess except for the few books we had um you know we were the only hip hypnotists we knew so we we, we yes. could we shared everything and we spoke for everything and you know as we as we read about you know some of these kind of holy grails even related to inductions handshake induction the that's right induction and, yeah. and pain control and all all these kind of miraculous things that we weren't necessarily getting to test uh in our fledgling uh hypnotherapy practice as time went on he's consistently been the first person to test these things out that are on the the, the edge of our knowledge base he's the first person i saw to genuinely do a handshake he's the first person i s saw do a that's right induction on someone who hadn't been hypnotized before it wasn't a re-induction um i've seen him do pain control i know you've seen his his pain control demo mm. as well um when when he was first doing that um i would almost kind of hide behind a pillar just thinking you know a curtain or something just like <laughs> no don't say they won't have any pain and it's always been exactly the same result. I'll, I'll talk about that in more detail later. But um, so he's he's been a major influence in that he just doesn't seem to have the the doubts and the self consciousness and the limitations that many people have. Yeah. And when he's standing opposite someone uh, and they say, "I've got this problem. I've got this, you know, um, crippling pain or toothache," again, he he. He's very, very good, at, or at least keeping his doubts to himself, as he likes to say. Um, he hasn't. He seems to have no doubt that he can help them, yeah. and that they can change. And again, that has been there really throughout my life. Whatever I've been doing, you know, he's kind of one of those guys who just believes you can be the best at something. Um, and I'm not suggesting I've lived up to that ever, but that's been a constant kind of message. If you want to play the guitar, we'll give it five years. You know, you can play like. Eric Clapton or if you want to do this you can you you, you can achieve this so <coughs> excuse this cough um he has definitely been a major influence um I know uh, Ericsson seems to be falling slightly out of favor but again the 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 influence of his work and Ernest Rossi's attempt to to, to write up his life's work yeah. just l kicked every door open um you know, he seemed to test every boundary, stuff to do with time distortion, how long can a post-hypnotic suggestion last, metaphorical approaches to change. It just was so vast and so wide, um, you know, forgetting what it may have become in terms of how people teach it and how people kind of 
try to be Ericksonian. Um, I I don't think his legacy can really be questioned if um, the the life works, the complete works are true. If you if you read his research papers and you read you know uh, Rossi's um, witnessing of, of all that kind of stuff, yeah. then definitely you know i'm i'm unashamed to say that he's 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 a major major influence yeah um no no question yeah 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 um I, you know it, it in amongst there and and in amongst the, i, I mean because you know these are some these are some big influential um um people and you know with a with a lot of experience that you've had um um T- tell me about you know either in your therapy rooms or with some of your teaching or or, or whatever, and I, I I hope that Kev didn't didn't end up preempting um um your answer to this. But you know what have been some of the more um impressive applications of hypnosis that you've that you've witnessed that you've encountered? Well, again I I mentioned it there, but but pain control is definitely one of the one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen. And, you know, I, I've worked with clients with pain control and I've had some miraculous results and I've had some mediocre results. But the first time I really witnessed pain control was when my dad would be running a group quit smoking session or a weight loss session, you know, in a, typically in a hotel conference room with plastic chairs and so on. And afterwards, often there'd be one person who'd say, um, you know, I, I struggle to get into that. I have a hip problem or uh, I have chronic pain in my shoulder and it was really bugging me tonight. Um, do you do anything about pain? And my dad would typically say, just hang around uh, at the end and um, we'll we'll get into it. Yeah. He would lift up, um, he'd run his little technique, which if you unpack it, there's some simple physical dissociation um, it's kind of symbolically representing the pain as a as a target and some direct suggestion um, to let go of it, and then a kind of double bind at the end that your arm will drift down only as quickly as you're free of that. Yeah. And the, the the first time I saw this, there were two people there. One had a, a, some sort of crumbling hips. I'm not quite sure what it was, and had been on crutches for eleven years. The other woman next to her, I think it was a some sort of frozen shoulder, but it had been bugging her for years. They both opened their eyes, burst into tears. My dad was like, <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. Um, and they said, yeah, I can't feel any pain. The lady with the crutches said, do you think I can walk without them? My dad obviously said, well, I'm not a doctor. Um, she got up, she handed him the crutches, she started taking steps and walked out of the room with them under her arm. You know. <laughs> Brilliant. And now... You know, the only people that I've seen doing that kind of thing were kind of TV evangelists, Benny Hinn's of the world. And I was always kind of down on that, thinking, well, you know, if you're whipped up into a kind of religious fervor and and you've got all sorts of, you know, adrenaline and other things running around in your body, plus the power of the Lord, then maybe you do jump up and dump the crutches, but you're probably in agony the next day. But, um, and, and maybe that is the case, but I've seen my dad do this maybe... I don't know, a couple of dozen times over the years, because it's normally an impromptu thing. Yeah. He did it in Vegas. Uh, a guy who was training with us brought along a friend 
who'd been in a car accident a year and a half earlier is it completely destroyed his ankle is you know is now fused to his leg with pins and you know it's on the highest uh, kind of pain control drugs that he could be on he was still in agony and we only had 10 minutes left in this room before we need to get out all of our students are in there and um i was like oh god you know same my doubts are like you know oh, don't do it you know yeah. um <laughs> i strolled outside to the swimming pool walked around i came back in this guy was pointing at my dad shouting you are the man you are the man banging his foot on the floor and there was a guy on the course who was a kind of uh, reverend or a preacher or something on the phone to his wife saying, I've just witnessed a real miracle. <laughs> um, and I, I've seen it so many times with raging toothache to someone who burnt themselves to someone who's got, you know, a chronic pain um, that all I can say is we clearly have the capacity to completely step away from pain what, what what the mechanics are and how that works and how it happens you know we can kind of try and unpack the technique and and and, and find the bits that are most crucial to it but the technique's so simple you can teach it in five minutes let alone deliver it in five minutes yeah. and um i can't really trump that you know i've done lots of silly things i've, I've put thousands of pounds an inch away from someone's finger and challenge them to touch it without an audience if you can touch it you can have it and i haven't done that uh we've given post-hypnotic suggestions that have lasted months um and the person responds automatically yeah um i've seen i've you know seen and and, and done some amazing things but that's still the the thing that stands out to me the thing that if i describe it to a regular person or even a hypnotherapist I'd expect him to have some doubts about the possibility of that. But yeah. I've witnessed it over and over and over. And um, it, it's there as a kind of marker for me of, of what's possible. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, um, I was just going to add, just, yeah. I, I don't know if it would help, but when you asked about influences, um, rather than just banging on about my dad, um, I was just going to quickly run through a few books. Oh, yeah, that, please, please. That have kind of taught me the most. And again, they're, I don't know if they'd be surprising books or not, but these are just the ones that had the most influence on me. Um, early on, and it's a book I still recommend, uh, again, despite the backlash on NLP and its grand claims, is Training Trances by Overdorf and yeah. Silverthorne. Yeah. Um, obviously, a lot of the early NLP books are the thing that kind of lit up the possibility of change being easy and change uh, even being fun um, and the possibility of it happening. But they were kind of written in this transcript of a training seminar style, and you had to really yeah. pour through them to unpick the practical stuff. And Training Trances did that. It's like a, it's like a well-formed version of the original transformations. It gave the technique structure. Um, it covered a lot of the, 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 the real gems, and not just in terms of the inductions, but in terms of a system. Yeah. I mean, I think about what I do in therapy, um, a lot of it, you know, came out of there. So I've never met Overdorf. I've heard tons about him and his presence and his his his, his manner and uh, his his modern teaching. Uh, I'd love to meet him one day. But that had a big impact. Yeah. Um, another book which I've probably given away half a dozen copies of now is Human Givens: A New Approach to Emotional Health. Yeah. Um, the things that stood out in there were their kind of updated conceptualization of our basic needs as a human. Um, it made a lot more sense than, than Maslow's stuff. Yeah. Um, and also their contribution to understanding 
what is it that allows depression to cling and how can you lift depression i think it's so significant so simple um and still massively overlooked and this is the the, the piece about rumination yes. and its effect on sleep i just think everyone needs to to know about that um again more recently and obviously it's another one of your interviews but provocative hypnosis by jürgen rasmussen was such a kick up the bum for me yeah um it made me question everything i was doing it made sense of um the sessions where you know it was kind of turning into relaxation and a bit of psychotherapy rather than rather than hypnosis yeah um and i you know i just i i love the way the guy answers questions and he's prepared to think and he's prepared to consider different views and then you know he's just a just just a great guy i was really he really, really pleased yeah. to have him on our first conference yeah um <clears throat> and even more recently the last few years uh hypnosis the cognitive behavioral model edited by spanos and chavez this yeah. sat on my shelf for years um because i was kind of eschewing the social and cognitive views of hypnosis i thought they were saying it didn't exist when i read the book um it was like it was one of the final pieces of of kevin and i putting together ai um until i read it i couldn't the things that I was I was hung up on in terms of it must be a state were amnesia and pain control. Yeah. Um, I, I was just like, well, you, you can't role play that. You can't, uh, you know, imagine that away. And, and that book made clear, well, of course you can. People do it every day. They, yeah. they, especially people who are suffering with chronic pain, they find their own strategy. They don't have a hypnotist. So that book um, made a huge amount of sense to me. And then two more quick mentions, Essentials of Clinical Hypnosis uh, by Lynn and Kirsch. Yeah. Um, it's an odd one, actually, because when you actually get into the techniques in there, it, it, it's, it's not that exciting, it's not that radical, it's not that new. But um, things that kind of leapt off the page were the importance of establishing the therapeutic alliance which again, I, I, I'd hope I'd always tried to do, but I'd never really considered it in such concrete terms. And, um, you know, they point out in the book that of all the different aspects of therapy, this is the one, this, is the, this will have the biggest effect on whether your therapy is effective or not. Yeah. And there's also a chapter in there on regression. Um, not that regression's ever been the backbone of my system, um, but I've used simple time machine timeline type things yeah. and i've you know um i can't help it i've i've i'm convinced i've seen the change happen it turn on that moment but it kind of gave me a much clearer understanding of why that might be the case and also why regression is just not good therapy it it really unpacked kirsch's statement at our conference a few years ago yeah and um so i really recommend that book to it's, to it's, it's got a really good section on all of the all of the kind of studies that contribute to questioning um the veracity um, um, um within hypnosis and, and applications with regards to memory and things like that all the all the solid yeah. stuff within there and one of the things that you mentioned you know it, it's not it's not exactly exciting it's one of the things that that that, that pleases me about that about that book um, um because I, I love its sobriety um, um yeah. you know for me that's that that was something that really changed things for me you know being sober about it and letting results be perceived as magical if need be 
Yep. And, and, and then there was another book as well, Ant. Uh, there's one more. It's very expensive, and it's really written for kind of mystery performers. Um, and that's Thought Vale. It's it's by one of the world's, uh, you know, certainly most well-regarded um, mystery performers. And there's no other term that's going to do it because he's more than a hypnotist and more than a reader, um, yeah. more than a therapist. But it's by a guy called Jerome Finley. And it's it's to me it's like the encyclopedia of hypnosis he's covered so much stuff in this vast tomb um that it's a really really good one especially if people have a kind of interest in performance you won't need another book it's it's just everything is in there so that's thought veil by jerome finley excellent uh, but, but if you're just you know a, a casual inquirer the the 450 dollars on that one may <laughs> keep it at arm's length yeah i, I mean there's there's a major <clears throat> variety within there you know um, um that, that's one of the things that's always appealed to me about about your work you know the variety and and the the, the embracing of so much diversity um, um i mean given that given that and given that the, the variety of experience and um um exploration that you've done you know if, if you could go back to when you started out you know, as, mm -hmm. as a hypnosis professional, knowing all the stuff that you know now, um, um, would there be anything that you'd do differently? Um, would there be any advice you'd give that person, uh, the younger you, um, that you'd perhaps extend to, to hypnosis professionals of today? Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, I do, I do see people who are, who are even younger than I was when, when I got started. Um, so I often dish out these bits of advice. But one thing I'd say is, and again, maybe this is, is the wrong thing to say, but I would say get started with the hypnotizing bit as soon yeah. as possible. Literally, get it under your belt. Read a book. Read Reality is Plastic. Read a, a little... You could read something from the 50s. You know, it, it doesn't matter. The, the methods haven't changed that much. Read a book that has a practical guideline of how to do this. You know, read the health and safety section, fine. Be... Um, you know, rein yourself in, don't go crazy. But first things first is hypnotize someone, see it happening and have that transformation that Kev described, in fact, when he first stuck someone's hand together. You know, 18 months of reading, suddenly it all makes sense because someone yeah. cannot pull, it, pull their hands apart. So first things first is have a go. You only need the basics, see a result and then kind of decide if it's for you, you know. Um, then take a deep breath and dive into the rabbit hole because it is just that. It's, it's such a vast topic and it can be completely consuming because once you kind of realise what, hip, what hypnosis is and, and what it's capable of, it's kind of like whatever else you're into, running, therapy, sales, personal development you know whatever it happens to be yeah um you see applications for hypnosis but i i you've got to kind of get in there first i i i spent a lot of time um you know i, I guess i was lucky that i had these first few sessions and it got me started but when i wanted to stretch myself and and find new applications i'd think about it it's the equivalent of being a magician and sort of carrying a pack of cards around in your pocket but not getting them out yeah uh you know wearing out the box before the cards get get creased it's yeah. it's 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 kind of have a go but then if you want to be a professional whether you perform want to be a performer or a therapist 
then I do suggest people get training from a professional and um, do their due diligence because choosing training on, on both sides can, can be a minefield. There's just so many training courses. And often people make a decision on price or on contact time or on the body or the org associated with it and so on. Kind of thinking that all hypnotherapy is ultimately the same. And you can end up, you know, as my father did, on a course that was essentially hypnoanalysis. It was close your eyes and do analysis. Yeah. I know many people who have done, you know, one of the most well-known courses in the UK is essentially hypno-counselling. It's a very small amount of hypnosis and then, you know, a year learning to become a counsellor. And yeah. it might not be what you have in mind. It might not be what you witnessed. It might not be what you experienced. So choose a course based on the style of hypnotherapy that you want to do choose a course with a trainer who has vast amounts of practical experience um because the the, the kind of bloated nature of the industry is it's not it, it seems to be deflating a little bit that that there was a period where you know courses were turning out 400 practitioners at a time and mm. many of them failing in business then become trainers it's the kind of only way to go so you need to find a trainer who's walked the walk, got the practical experience, can answer almost any question, could point to referrals, not just to people they've trained, but people they've helped, if it's therapy or yeah. performances they've given. Because um, it's the real world experience that shaves away those those kind of edges and, 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 you know, sharpens the blade, as it were. And then my other bit of advice, if you want to be a pro about this, yeah. is to recognise that, just because you're in the business of, you know, changing lives and do it right and you will um, facilitate what will seem like miracles. You know, if someone has a fear for 20 years and then they haven't, it will seem like a miracle. Um, but I put an emphasis on the business side of changing lives because otherwise you just won't see anyone. Um, you have to take care of business. If you're not hypnotizing, you need to be marketing and the best kind of marketing I've found much to my expense eventually is, is networking. It's not advertising. Um, it's networking. It's letting people know in your area, what you do. It's yeah. being able to demonstrate it when chances pop up. It's kind of being proud of your price. You know, uh, I think that was quite a tough one. Uh, it certainly was for me to, yeah. to, to go from, <clears throat> you know, working in a job and getting a salary to saying, well, I could earn that much on a Monday if I charged, hundred pounds an hour, 150 pounds an hour or, yeah, or whatever quite. it happens to be. And it felt a bit odd at first. Um, you know, and I ran a guarantee system and all this kind of stuff. I don't do that anymore. And then, uh, another point, And again, this is something I was kind of guilty of throughout the whole time of seeing those thousands of clients was maintain contact with your clients. Now don't, don't yeah. pester them, but keep the line of communication open. Um, otherwise, you'll find the people who get the miracle change vanish. Um, they've got no real clue that you may be able to help them in other areas. Um, and they don't know how to help you and promote your business and things. Um, plus, you will have a much clearer view of what your results actually are and a much uh, better opportunity to help people who need more help. It doesn't always happen in one, two or three sessions or whatever it is that your, your approach is. But that doesn't mean you can't help them um so you know i used to, because i ran a guarantee system and it was there was no 
catch to this. It would call a free phone number. And if you want your money back, it will be sent back. You don't even need to speak to me. Um, you'll just say, I haven't quit. Or, I've still got a phobia and it'll be sent back to you. And I kind of took the um, lack of, of response to be success when it clearly it wasn't always success. And, um, you know, perhaps people felt bad about asking for their money back or perhaps people felt that they had failed or, or something else. So yeah. um, I think, you know, that that's a, that's something that I really encourage people to do. Just just keep the door open and every now and again, send them a message and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and then just a couple more points. Um, and these are all things that I, I was so caught up in. So things like try not to get sidetracked searching for the ultimate technique. Yeah. You know, we, we all want to improve, but I am firmly of the opinion now that you, you can so easily get caught in the trail of techniques. You know, I've got a client with IBS coming. I need an, I need an IBS technique. I've got a client with this. I, I, I needed this. And it's yeah. kind of like, no, le learn a system and run the system. And run it again and run it a hundred times, run it a thousand times if you get that opportunity. And it and it's just, sure, there's at some point, if it's not the system for you, learn another system. But my, my, I see so many practitioners who have far more training than me who are caught up in the trail of techniques. Sure. And <clears throat> it's a bit like turning up for a, a martial arts class or a, you know, a kung fu class or whatever and, and throwing perfect punches. And throwing them thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And hopefully you never need to throw a punch in, in, in anger. But you do that so that when conditions are not perfect, the punch comes out as close to perfect. And, you know, if people look at my videos from five years ago and they saw what I did yesterday, 80% of what, what I'm doing is the same. And the rest is mostly personalization. Yeah. Um, so I just don't believe it's really about... The number of techniques. I, I think it's. A, I think you can learn everything you need to know from a handful of techniques. You just need to squeeze every single kind of drop out of them. Mm. Um, and then I saw a nice quote yesterday, which is the formula for, for success: double your rate of failure. And so yeah. many people come into this, especially if they come into it from a performance perspective terrified of failure terrified of looking stupid you know that prevented me from trying a handshake induction for about five years yeah. you know because because i was read the ericsson thing and it's you got to hold it like this and get this timing and what if they say what are you doing <laughs> you know um i did one and then i did 20 you know in, in in the hour and a half after that so just have a go find a sympathetic other who will who will let you practice and get over your fears because it just doesn't matter it's just uh and the same with therapy you know people are uh, i think partly it's the training of positivity and, and it must think successfully and then it will manifest and all this kind of stuff and i think that's a big reason why you know your drive toward evidence-based practice um is 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 quite an uphill struggle because no one wants to really shine a light on what's happening when it's not working yeah. And what can we learn from that? And, and so on. So, you know, any other style of therapy, you go see a chiropractor, and your back still hurts. You know, it's it's it doesn't undermine that guy completely or undermine his professionalism.
I mean, the fact that he's practicing chiropractor, he's a chiropractor should, but. There is some real gold in there, um, um, you know, the stuff you've been talking about. I think there's um, a, a couple of the points really, really interrelate as well. A couple of the points you make, you know, about, uh, about getting, you know, practical experience and becoming good um, um, at what you do is 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 what one of the great ways to to develop a business a really important part you know you'll be perceived as being credible you know and if you're getting results you'll get referrals um um and and yeah you know there's 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 some really really insightful and interesting stuff i mean we, we just touched upon um, um and, and you just touched upon um evidence base there um, um just just tell me and what are your what are your thoughts about evidence based approaches to hypnosis well it's been, you know, it's been a bit of an awakening and again, quite a tough one um, since really discussing this with you and, and Kev and, and others since then. Um, I totally agree if the profession is to be taken seriously, uh, then more practitioners must commit to working with an evidence based approach. There's, there's no question about it. It can't progress. Um, I'm not doing the research so that, you know, I, I have to kind of look at the research and, and, and take some of that on board. The things that have affected me on a personal level are limiting uh, the grand claims unless there's evidence. And, yeah. you know, the smoking one is a, is, is a great example because I could, and, and for years, would base my claim on the fact that I offered a crystal clear guarantee and that 85% of people did not ask for their money back. But there was no follow-up. Um, so follow up with your clients rather than assuming success. Yeah. Um, you know, the meta-analysis on smoking suggests that 30, it's, it's th only 36% of people quit with hypnosis and 6% quit without any intervention. Yeah. It doesn't sound that great coming out of a hypnotherapist's mouth. It's double all the other methods combined. Yeah. It's actually very good news. Um, so the follow-up, it's made a difference in terms of me following up with my clients. And that's made a difference to my business. Um, it's made a difference in terms of me paying attention to modern research rather than just reading old books from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, where I struggle, and you know, I don't mind admitting this, is in my practice, because I don't use techniques in isolation, it's always been a kind of weaving of direct suggestion, some indirect suggestion, some post-hypnotic suggestion, um, you know, a technique yeah. that will help with fear, a technique that will help with, uh, you know, giving you time, you know, weight, uh, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I never quite know what the thing, what the ch where the change happens, the point that it kind of turns on, if, if, if you're with me. Yeah. And even within a technique itself, if you were to take something like a, a, a classic kind of phobia cure, even within that, sometimes maybe it's it's the dissociation and sometimes it's the sense of control and sometimes it's the fact that i make them laugh and give them a post-hypnotic suggestion this will never happen again yeah. even when i kind of unpack a technique it's kind of like where did this happen so in terms of practice i, I i'm not as clinical as you'd need to be in a lab to be able to isolate a technique so sure. in that sense um it's kind of yes i'm going to use techniques that there may not be a ton of research to, to, to stand behind. Um, but I, I'm totally supportive of, of your effort to make this core, 
you know, to your training and, and to your practice as well. Well, one of the things that I mean, one of the things that, that I tend to find is that, it, 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 you know, because because, you know, um, um, despite what a lot of people perhaps perceive as as my my, my real strong stance towards evidence based is, is that sometimes, you know, I, I still um, will, will apply and use something that perhaps lacks direct evidence to support its application. But perhaps yeah. some of the principles that underpin it have some yeah. have some evidence base, you know, yeah. and, and, to, and to me, that still seems like. Um, a sound direction. Yeah, no, and and I agree with you there. And some of the principles that uh, that do have a, an evidence base, they're not necessarily the, you know, uh, the most nice, sparkly and spangly and nifty. Um, <laughs> heck, like uh, <laughs> you know, things like repetition. It's kind of like yeah. I was really down on repetition. It's like I hate repetition because it reminded me of old school hypnotists droning on with the same instruction over and over and over. A bit of a cliche. But the fact is repetition works. That suggests that seeing someone more than once works. It suggests yeah. that running techniques over and over again may work and, and, and repeating aspects of a technique and, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's good stuff and I try to kind of keep it in mind and move in that direction yeah. i'm just saying that the reality for me of, of sitting opposite someone and meeting them person to person right i know that sometimes my work is done in this discussion yeah i know that sometimes the work is done just by p changing their perspective in that discussion i know sometimes by the time we actually get to the hypnotic techniques a tap on the head with a pen is all i'm going to need yeah you know i i really feel that and I appreciate I have little evidence for that, but that's I've I've done this with so many people that sometimes I can't help it. I just feel like I know um, that that change happened right there. In the same way, in normal life, in a conversation, you suddenly see a change in in, in the, the way the person looks, their physiology, their 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 thinking, the answers they give, and you just think I th I think they're going to get over that. You know, yeah. I think that I think they're going to go for it. I think they're going to do well in this interview. And you don't quite know what happened or what did it. I see yeah. the time is running on, Adam. It's 55 yeah. minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, I, I'm just saying, I, I, where can people go to learn more about your work and approach to hypnosis? OK, well, everything related to head hacking. And that is you can access us as performers. And we also provide products and training um, can be found at headhacking.com dot com yeah um we have a facebook group which is you know spam f and idiot free um <laughs> so we have a we have a head hacking page uh, but we also have a head hacking group i'll i'll send you the link to that because yeah. it's a bit, a bit of an ugly link um the hypnotherapy training uh the company i run with my father my father's been running it since 1999 is uk hypnotherapy we run one or two courses a year the next one's in december um and for more about me personally and accessing me as a therapist it's just anthonyjackwin.com great great and there will be links to all of those on uh, today's episode page um, um, Anthony, thank you ever so much. Gold uh, galore in that uh, interview. Um, uh, we will be right back with uh, Anthony later on today in Hypnosis Weekly for our professional discussion.
Now I wanted to have a brief dip into the post bag this week instead of our usual hypnosis in the news section as there were a couple, just two, very pertinent questions I thought I'd answer uh, related to, to some of our previous editions. Firstly, Alex in Shropshire asked if I would offer up my own answers to the interview questions that have been asked um, um, in previous editions. And yes, I will do that at some point. Perhaps if I struggle for an interviewee at any stage. I'm just kidding. Perhaps I'll write up my own responses and post them on the Hypnosis Weekly site. Um, um, or perhaps we'll have a bumper edition at some point in the future and I'll offer that up. Um, though anyone wishing to hear my explanation or definition of hypnosis without reading myself hypnosis book, for example, can go and listen to the interview that's added to the notes of episode one of this podcast. Um, um, the episode one was with Jürgen Rasmussen, but it was in response to an interview between myself and James Tripp, um, and we added that audio there. And you can have a good listen to that. Um, uh, it gives you a really good idea and probably answers lots of those interview questions. Um, now, secondly, Dave from Glasgow asks, if you do not use regression in therapy, as stated during the Roy Hunter episode, how do you deal with the root cause of trauma or phobias, or do you not treat those issues? I absolutely do work with those issues, and I hope that the impression wasn't given uh, of anything else. Um, I would say that there is actually far less evidence base to support using regression to treat those issues successfully than there is supporting a wide number of other approaches. In particular, my own approach would be to favour a cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy approach. Now, it's tough to tell you what I'd do every time with every client in a completely exhaustive fashion. But processes such as systematic desensitization, the, the cardinal technique of psychotherapy, as well as a wide array of cognitive restructuring techniques and other cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy processes, fill me with, with many choices of techniques and strategies uh, that, that would combine to, to form a treatment plan for those kinds of issues. With that approach, with the CBH approach, the cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy approach, the root cause is not really sought out um, um, for, for therapeutic value. Some understanding of the cause is examined in assessment and during case conceptualization, but the focus tends to be on equipping the person to deal with, cope and overcome the problem that exists in the day-to-day -day experience of the individual. I realise that's not a full comprehensive answer, um, um, it's more kind of alluding to a response, but it's tough to deliver um, my entire cognitive behavioural hypnotherapy certification course in a media-friendly soundbite on this podcast. Do um, um, message me again if you'd like any further, if you'd like me to point you in the direction of further resources to read um, or articles that'll explain those things in a bit more depth. So as I said, there's just a very brief sojourn into the mailbag. Hypnosis in the News will return next week. Next up, we have this week's discussion. Anthony Jacqueline and I shared a couple of emails as I was in the process of cajoling him into getting involved with this podcast. Um, despite being one of the more erudite individuals I've communicated with in this field, he was leaning towards um, a preference of, of having a more practical theme for our discussion. With his book, Reality of Plastic, being such a brilliant, applicable and practical manual for any hypnosis professional, it seemed to make a lot of sense to discuss with Anthony some of his favourite practical techniques and strategies, and he offers up much insight to how he works with clients here today. 
I also asked him about practical applications of the AI model that him and Kev Sheldrake pioneered and what ensues is a sharing of how Ant uses that in his work but also the philosophy which has evolved in his work and some incredibly illuminating existential discussion that's resulted in me googling a lot of new things since we recorded this chat. Um, let's get into that then, here we go. Okay, so I'm back now with Anthony Jacquin. Um, when, when Anthony and I were just exchanging emails and discussing ideas for this part of the podcast this time round, um, um, it, it was, we, we, Anthony and, and I sort of had this idea that it would be great to be, to be more practical based and perhaps less bogged down with, with too much theory. And, and so I suggested, you know, how about I ask you about some of your, your favorite techniques and strategies? And I found this to be particularly pertinent based upon the fact that so many of our former guests on this show have referred to Anthony's book, Reality is Plastic. But likewise, you know, wherever you go within the hypnosis field, anybody that's read that book says, you know, that was it. That opened doors for me. That, 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 that got me to a really good place. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely recommend the book. And one of the things that I love so much about it is... You know, it's it's so concise. I mean, uh, uh, the the way in which um, the way in which techniques and strategies are described and utilised, you know, it's really user friendly, and so it made a lot of sense today to discuss some practical aspects. And um, um, so I thought I would ask Anthony about some of his favourite techniques throughout his career and and techniques that feature in reality as plastic. Um, and perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about perhaps your favourite induction, perhaps a therapy technique, and, and some of the reasons that you like them. Certainly. And apologies in advance, because it's not all going to be radically new. Um, as I said earlier, I've been running a system for, for a long, long time and kind of honing that system, the component parts of which I'm confident many of your listeners will be familiar with sure even if they're not kind of using them or they may have put them down at at some point um so my if if we start with with therapy um yeah. perhaps it'll be more useful to most of your listeners um in therapy my sessions typically last about an hour and 15 minutes and they start with uh me saying, what do you want? In a, in a nice inquiring tone. Yeah. Um, not what's wrong or what is the problem. I ask what they want. They um, normally tell me what they don't want. And, and that gets things started. So I want a nice outcome. You know, how, the magic wand question, how would you know yeah. uh, that this had been a success? And I find that is important because otherwise people do often dwell in the problem frame and you keep asking questions that keep them there. So, you know, how would you know what would be what would be different? Well, I would be this. I would be able to do that. Until we get to that, I don't really continue. Um, once we've established that, I explain how the session's going to run and I ask some questions. And it was interesting at our conference a couple of years back, um, was it 2013, um, where Barry Tain um, pointed out the importance of a comprehensive 
case history. Yeah. Um, and Gary Smiler Turner stood up and said he doesn't do any case history. Um, I'm kind of somewhere in in the middle there. I ask maybe a dozen questions that I find to be the most pertinent questions. And when I ask these questions, I'm really gathering ammunition that will provide me with that I can fire back at the client, excuse the constant violent metaphors, but the <laughs> ammunition that I can fire back at the client in the session, things that will give me the personalization for future pacing and, and things like that. It's not um, that I need to know about your mother and your relationships and your childhood and every aspect and every experience. I don't feel that I do, but I gather information that will be pertinent to our session. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's quite short. This is probably only five, 10 minutes into the session. Um, I then have a discussion with my client and, and I feel like I'm at work, by the way, hypnotically using suggestion, changing perceptions, challenging beliefs throughout the, throughout the entire session, but certainly throughout the discussion. Yeah. Sometimes most of my work is done in the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so if a smoker comes in believing they can't do it, that uh, it's the addiction to nicotine that's the problem and it will be painful to quit and that it relaxes them. By the end of the discussion, if I've done my job, they won't believe any of those things anymore. They'll know they can do it. They'll understand their problem is one of habit. They will recognize that it was everything other than the, the, the chemicals in the cigarette that were helping them to relax and so forth and so on. So we have a discussion which is important and you know, as a beginner, that was the kind of toughest thing to cultivate because it's not that you need to be an expert on all problems, but you need to be able to frame all problems in in, in the terms that you're talking about. <clears throat> in, yeah. And for me, uh, the terms that I'm really talking about boil down to um, parts work and then the plastic-like nature of the thing you're calling reality. So at the center of my system, I say parts work rather than parts therapy. Um, I don't mean Roy Hunter's kind of uh, parts in conflict. Um, it's much more closely related to the sixth step or what new code NLPers would call an end step reframe. Right. Um, yeah. There's, you know, at some point in the session, in, in the discussion, I say, so you want to be X, it's as if there is a part of you that continues to Y. They nod and I then say, well, in a moment, I will hypnotize you. I will speak to that part and essentially describe the negotiation that we're going to go through from there. Sure. And um, there are very, very few things that I cannot frame in those terms. And I, again, I've said this to thousands of people and every single one of them nods and says, yes, that's exactly what it's like. So despite Bandler, Bandler made a comment about no longer doing parts work maybe 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> And it seems people kind of dropped it in droves and then moved on to a control panel uh, or to, 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 to something else. It's still parts to me. And parts is common to almost every style of psychotherapy. They may call it an inner child. They may call it, a, a, you know, a body memory. They sure. may call it. But the, the idea of parts is, is common uh, to so many styles. Um, so... I introduce that idea and what happens at that point is I, that's my first big move in that that dissociates the person to some degree. You've thought about this for long enough. 
you know, one of my dad's favourite lines, uh, which only he could really deliver, is, <laughs> I don't mean this rudely. I'm not interested in your conscious mind. Yeah. I'm not interested in what you think about this. You've thought about it long enough and it hasn't made any difference. I'm going to speak to the part of you and then he'll, he'll get into a, <clears throat> a layman's description of that basic negotiation. Right, so yeah. parts work. Um, I wish there was a good evidence base for it because I've used it with so many different things. I've used it in five minute interventions uh, and I've used it in, you know, 90 minute interventions. And I just still love it. I still yeah. it keeps me out of content. It keeps me away from all the kind of historical context and it allows me to work in a very clean fashion. So I still love parts work. Um, that's really interesting for me to hear. Um, 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 but, but also, you know, I think just as just as relevant and just as important um, um, what you were talking about uh, as far as assessment was concerned, you know, asking the right questions. Certainly, um, as I started discovering my own leaning towards cognitive behavioral models of therapy and applications of hypnosis, for example, um, um, you know, knowing and understanding a, a good anthology of Socratic questioning techniques, you know, in and of itself, you know, having people, what evidence do you have for that belief, for example, yep. punctuating assessment with those kind of questions yep. very often had a really valuable therapeutic effect. Um, and, and yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of pitch in with that a little bit yeah. because, um, <clears throat> um, you know, I think that's a really important point that a lot of people overlook. Um, Absolutely. And it's being able to, to sit there and ask those questions like a, yeah. like a, yeah, I sometimes describe it as, as the, the therapist is like the mirror. Okay. And the mirror is quite effortless. The mirror just reflects. Yeah. Right. So someone says something to you and it's heartfelt and it's painful, it's agonizing and you want to sympathize and empathize and all this kind of stuff. And then asking a question like, well, what evidence do you have for that? Yeah. It, it, on the surface, you read it on a page. It, it seems so cold. But but when you're sitting in front of someone and you're rock solid in how you ask that question, you're, you're just you're just inquiring um, that in itself can kick the legs away from yeah. that thing and, and hone you in. I guess it's where Bandler and Grindler were kind of with the meta model, um, you know, early on. But it's, there's, there's, it's in the flesh, in, in, in the moment. You ask these kind of questions, it can be massively profound and kind of, you know, eventually enhance that, that, that person's life. So there's that. Um, to get back to the practical stuff, in, yeah. in therapy, yes, I still use an induction. Yeah. And we'll talk about automatic imagination, the fact that inductions don't do anything later. Um, and I'll, exp I'll kind of justify why I use an induction. Um, but my process for years and years has been to use the... It's my dad's induction, so it's got his name on the front. It's called the Jacqueline Power Lift. It's yeah. probably the most overlooked induction in Reality is plastic because it's more geared toward therapy rather than the, the impromptu stuff. Um, I use that induction in every single first session of hypnosis. So does my dad. He's used it 20,000 times. It culminates in the person sitting there with their arm in the air and their eyes closed. Very similar, in fact, to Bob Burns's swan technique, although that isn't an induction. Um, and the reason I like the person to end up in that position is because my next step is to create idiomotor movement. Again, very, very similar to, to the swan. Um, so 
that's what I do. I say, okay, you ready to be hypnotized? I'm going to borrow your arm. I lift it up, lift it down. It's a bit of rehearsal. And then I leave it there. And it, it allows me the leverage to um, either make their arm stiff, make it move. If they're not looking comfortable, I can bring it down and get into something a bit more progressive. But that's the only induction that I really use in therapy. I just don't need another one. I've long since, you know, given up the search uh, for that. And this one, this one puts me in the perfect position. Yeah. Um, I then, uh, we, I call this part the bridge. I then suggest that their unconscious can communicate. I've already created an expectation that this can happen in my discussion and I get a movement. And because that hand has kind of got this, you know, potential uh, movement anyway, often it is that hand or often it's the other one. A finger will twitch, eyes will flicker and I build idiomotor movement and I pin the value on it of communication. So their unconscious is giving me a signal or a sign. Kirsch Irving Kirsch, in a sentence, undermined that for me um, and was like, yeah, would I, would I talk about a pendulum swinging in the same way? You yeah. know, pro- probably not. Um, however, <laughs> I still use an induction and I still use idiomatic communication for the simple reason that this is where I can give the person the accompanying sense of involuntariness that I talk about when I, when I talk about automatic imagination and I think the sense of involuntariness is useful in therapy and it may be where its value was all along. I was saying, wow, look at those signals. They're unconscious. It bang, it communicates on cue. Look, their arms are in the air. And I've seen idiomotor stuff that, um, would scare the living daylights out of people, you know, arms going, legs going, next move, you know, this person's going to levitate, you know, I've seen muscles, pectoral muscles twitching. I've seen people belching from, from the depths of their soul as a, as an idiom, a signal, because I push the signal beyond the finger movement. Yeah. Um, stuff that it's hard. It's hard for me to deny that, that it, that it was what I was purporting it to be. I now realize it was all suggested in the same way trance and them looking like they're in a trance was suggested and, and depth and, and them looking like they're getting deeper and more intense was suggested i i'm firmly of the opinion that idiomotor communication is suggested rather than being a direct line to their all-knowing all-seeing unconscious mm. um but i still find it of massive value well so, I, you know yeah. I, I i i think um there's a there's a really interesting point that you make within there as well with with regards to induction you know um, um even prior to curse with with theodore barber ted barber saying yep. that really really inductions do very little other than increase suggestibility <coughs> to, in, in very very small amounts um, um yet 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 barber still continued to use induction and i think you know a number of reasons perhaps um, um, because it, it increases perceived credibility, perhaps because, you know, there is an, an element of expectation that gets fulfilled with regards to it. But for me, um, importantly, with inductions, you know, once they're taught, um, 
they can then be handed over as self-hypnosis processes or even yeah. be learned as hypnotic skills. And, you know, eye fixation and eyelid catalepsy, real basic stuff such as, you know, um, eye fixation types of inductions um, um, are also idiomotor responses that, that, that people can learn, can practice, can become better at, as a result, become more responsive and, and arrive at therapy in the, the next session, you know, a, a better... A, a, a better subject so to speak yeah and you know so it makes a lot of sense to continue to utilize inductions as far as i'm concerned you know i think it's got a lot of therapeutic value um, um despite some of the you know despite some of the points that you've made you know very yeah, valid points that you've the, made. the other thing is when you when you unpack um the therapeutic alliance and the, the the things that go into building a therapeutic alliance um one aspect of that is um some belief in the practitioner having uh, a skill or ability or knowledge that would be able to facilitate the change and simple demonstrations eye catalepsy they obviously use the pendulum um idiomotor movement do go some way to enhancing that um and the other things that you mentioned there you know the process and and so on yeah. focusing attention this is all good stuff too but the the, the biggest value it has for me is that it gives the person an opportunity, if you, you choose the right induction, it gives the person an opportunity to experience something with a, to a greater or lesser degree, a sense that it's automatic and it's involuntary. And that then makes sense of how I've pitched their problem. What it also does is, yes, it allows me to address, you know, what, what it, it, they're unconscious, if you like, even though I have no real belief in their conscious as playing any part in this at all anymore um rather than just belittling it belittling it it keeps the aspect of them that they believe to be their conscious self dissociated right they, yeah. they, they they can sit and observe i can give them something to do i can ask them to to engage in some future pacing while i continue to talk and negotiate with the bit that seems to actually be doing the job so that's kind of my justification for that um, I, I know I don't have to do it. I've done plenty of change work where the person was 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 scared of hypnosis, and I just run my processes anyway. Yeah. You know, um, it's just it's just a label. So, yeah. If it, just in a nutshell, if you were to boil that all down, if I if I had ten minutes, fifteen minutes to help someone, let's say one example, I was at a wedding and the person had a fear of bees and wasps and couldn't go out for the photographs. Um, then I would just say, I would frame it in terms of, you know, it's like there's a part of you doing this, it's running a protective mechanism, pop up their arm, establish a signal, work my way through um, the parts work and bring them out and test, you know, and that it's, yeah, it's slightly more involved than just giving them a direct suggestion of you love bees and wasps, but that's, that would be um, a pretty kind of clipped potted version of, of what I would do in therapy. I would then wrap around that, everything else which I thought could help and in some cases the things I'm wrapping around it could also in isolation do the job you know but yeah. um that's that that's in practical terms that's kind of how I work well this is I mean this is this is interesting because you know I think also then I and this leads us nicely you, you've touched upon you know your journey towards um creating 
your, your, the, the AI model and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the product that was released, the, the ripped apart product and, and the presentations that I've seen you deliver with regards to the AI model are really, um, um, really heavily punctuated with, with theory. And I think one of the questions a lot of people um, um, have asked you and inquire about, uh, about in, with, you, with you guys and the AI model is, you know, what, what practical difference does it then make you know what what you know how is it different on a practical basis when you're applying the ai model yeah uh i get asked that a lot and um one day we will put out a, a practical equivalent to uh the manchu manchurian approach and the trilby connection all about ai but yeah. first off let's just say this that um we arrived at that definition of hypnosis or, or, or the ai model Firstly, by by sort of by by pieces that pillars, if you like, of hypnosis that I I thought were fundamental, just falling off, often by accident in a in a practical experience we'd have. You know, permanosis was an element of that. Realizing what well, I can just give a suggestion to someone. Um, things like it was just kind of a cutting away, the recognition of state really not being required the research and you know it's really kev's consideration of the research and 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 joe stemeyer's introduced us to some interesting papers too um reflecting on the practical work consideration of research meant that ai kind of emerged it was like a by cutting away what what wasn't fundamental that allowed us to see what was left yeah it's like peeling back nonsense to reveal sense like clearing out your flat to see what space you've got it was it was kind of it was it revealed itself not by adding anything not by relabeling um it was just not that not that not that not that and when it came down to it it seemed that all that was left were instructions suggestions and i'll make a distinction between those two and most importantly a cue to experience those instructions and suggestions with a an accompanying sense that they were involuntary or automatic, okay? Mm. And I'll, I'll just clarify that. An instruction, you know, is me saying, can you lift your arm or lift your arm? You know, sure. if you follow the instruction, you do that with an accompanying sense of choice and, and more accurately, a sense that you are doing it. Yeah. Right. So it's not experienced as hypnotic. Some people think that the people on stage are just doing it because they want to play along. It's certainly not the experience on on my stage. I wouldn't want that person on stage. Um, but that's not hypnotic. Suggestions can sound very, very similar. OK, what I, I ask a lot of hypnotists, what's the difference between instruction and suggestion? And they often struggle to answer the question. It seems to us that a suggestion differed slightly in that it contained a cue more often than not it was a tacit cue to experience the effect of the instruction or the suggestion with an accompanying sense of involuntariness in in other words as a happening rather than something you're doing that when we when we Mm. when he cut everything away was would would qualify as hypnotic rather than not hypnotic okay so when people ask me, um, you know, how do I do AI? My first answer is, look, 
AI is a description of how hypnosis works. So if I'm doing hypnosis, even if I'm doing exactly word for word what's written in Reality is Plastic and on our Trilby DVD, I am doing AI. If they have an experience as hypnotic, I am doing AI. Okay, that, that's my first response. But I think what they mean is, well, if induction and state and deeper and deeper are not required, yeah, mm. how, how would you do it? So the other end of the spectrum is when we've, when we've, we've had a couple of um, bits of research we've, we've done and we've needed to make it as clean as possible, then it really is just an instruction and a suggestion. But we, we make the tacit cue to experience it as if overt okay mm. so right so when we looked at the literature and you know all the stuff we've been doing if you look at a direct stage hypnotist saying in a moment i will touch you on the head and your eyes will close and you'll go into hypnosis the tacit cue is that when i do this this will happen yeah if i'm kind of being ericksonian about it and co coaxing out idiomotor signals I don't know if it will be your left hand or your right hand that begins to move first. You'll probably know before I do. The tacit cue is, is glaring. And to be honest, everything I look at, I, I see through these glasses. I just, uh, it's there every time. So that's the first uh, thing yeah. is, is that I am doing it. I am this. I don't turn it on or off. I just get more pure about it. Than not yeah. okay but given that the essence of it is an accompanying sense of involuntariness or automaticity that has made a practical difference to my work so what am i actually trying to do well i'm trying to um first off give the person an experience of that as early as possible and again I right. always have yeah. <laughs> by yeah. doing things like magnetic hands or eye catalepsy or so on. But yeah. now I, now I, the value of that is not so much the communication. It's the feeling that something's happening and that you are uninvolved with it. So I turned that up in terms of the sort of then pat, sort of weaving of the different techniques. Again, I've always given suggestions that would, um, shore up those techniques and, and carry them out into the future. But now I'm much more focused on that than the technique itself. So yeah. let's say, um, I don't know, let's say someone uses a kind of rewind type phobia type technique to, to, you know, cut away some emotion from a, from a thought, um, or from, from a fantasized situation or a real situation. Then I make sure that my suggestions and my post hypnosis suggestions will provide an ongoing sense of involuntariness about the result. They can be delivered very directly or they could be delivered indirectly in terms of, you know, you, you're going to be out there, you're going to wonder what's got into you. Yeah. Someone offers you a cigarette and you smile and say, no, thanks, I don't smoke. You know, I've said that for years, a direct suggestion. Anyone from today, anyone offers you a cigarette, you'll smile and say, no, thanks, I don't smoke. Then I may add, automatically, these words will come out of your mouth. You'll wonder what's got into you. You'll be looking back to now realizing you've been thinking about something entirely. This is just part, you know, and, and so on and so yeah, on and so yeah. on. So whatever right. the technique is, I will certainly add, add, a, add a tail on the end of it that is kind of like, well, if this technique worked, how could I ensure that there's less thinking involved, that they just respond, that they just do? 
So that's kind of made a difference. Mm. Right. But the bigger part of this, and, and again, this is, um, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of more recent, is that I, I've described this kind of shedding process that we went through yeah. to, to reveal automatic imagination. Yeah. You know, a letting go of things that I thought were fundamental to hypnosis. And if people listen to Ripped Apart, they'll realize that the tail end of that, we're challenging ideas that are kind of bigger than hypnosis they're more to do with the human condition and what it is to be a person yeah um so things like your conscious mind conscious decision making free will okay yeah all of these things kind of came under attack and even given a sort of cursory kicking fell over yeah um and that's just because neuroscience is caught up with philosophy and 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 it and it's, it's shining a light on this stuff um, obviously the Libet and the Haynes experiment is, is spoken about a lot now and well known. Yeah. Um, but you know, on an intellectual level, fine. It's interesting. What? Six seconds. The guy can tell whether I go left or right, you know, well, really let that resonate in your head. Really consider that, you know, and, and, and again, you don't want to be guilty of extrapolating out too far, but it's a massive crack on the kind of yeah. common model people have yeah. about how decisions are made. Um, there were some interesting books written on free will. Obviously, Gary may have been, I think he mentioned Sam Harris's book on free will. Um, and he's kind of done the job on that very, very nicely. But what's happened for me personally is that that process, that stripping away hasn't stopped. So when you look at memory, you know, uh, and, and obviously some of this came out of the Essentials of Clinical Hypnosis book. Yes. It fundamentally challenges, not just the, the, you know, it's kind of a dated idea anyway, that there are files and folders and USB sticks. But the majority of people seem to agree now, that, that or experts agree, that memory is, is better described as an act of creation on the fly. Yeah. Uh, something that stood out for me was that every time you remember something, you get further away from it. You know, even that first kiss or, or first love or, or whatever, which is kind of tragic in a way. But it's, it's, it's you know, you, you're getting further and further from it. So when you then start to look at, well, no, yeah, but I'm, I'm me. You know, I, it's my identity. Our identity is equivalent to memory. In fact, Julian Barnes in a book wrote exactly that. Identity is memory. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you've watched someone suffering with Alzheimer's, it's it's the, the tragedy is that it's as if that person is disappearing. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're forgetting simple things and then these tasks and then who is that? And then what have I done and how do I do? And it, it's, it's like a kind of dissolving. So on a personal kind of level, this, this is where I've been going for, for some time. And to the point where I was starting to wonder who am I? Right. Yeah. Um, am I going crazy? You know, is this healthy? Yeah. Okay. And then, funny enough, it was uh, you've met Jesse Cummins, good, yes. the, the mighty Tim Cummins' um, son. Yeah. Very, very smart. Absolutely. Um, and he was staying with me, and I was kind. Of, uh, he was staying for a week. I think he kind of wondered what we'd be talking about. And the first exchange we had, he said, "Hey, how's it going with AI?" And I said, "Well, to be honest, it's like everything else." I thought. 
uh, made me human is, is starting to fall away. I'm even starting to, you know, question space and time itself. And his <laughs> eyes lit up, right? Because this is kind of what I've been talking about. And at one point he said, uh, have you had an experience of non-duality? And I didn't really know what he was talking about. Um, and as much as I'm a bit of an old hippie and have read, you know, many books on Buddhism and meditation and yoga and so on. Um, Jesse... Um, asked me this question, have you had an experience of non-duality? Yeah. And I didn't really know what he was talking about. Um, now I know uh, a little more about what he was talking about. Um, it's kind of made sense of, of everything I've ever read, you know, on a more kind of spiritual tip. Um, Buddhism, Hinduism, yoga, you know, it's a, it's a concept that seems to straddle across various strands of religious and, and spiritual thought. Not that I am religious in, in any way. Um, and I've never kind of, a bit like me and, and hypnosis, I've never really achieved anything much with meditation or laying on the ground at the end of a yoga class and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, much to my dissatisfaction, okay? Um, and part of that is, is, but I've always had a kind of fascination with accounts of awakening, enlightenment, nirvana, kundalini, all this kind of stuff has, yes. has interested me, even though over the years I've got kind of more and more sceptical and hardened about uh, the means and the methods to kind of get there, you know, the chakras and the energies and the, and, and the so forth and the so on. So um, when I started looking into it, it turns out that it's actually growing in kind of popularity at the moment. It's, it's almost like it's described by someone as like spirituality for atheists. Okay. <laughs> but, but what it is, I realized is, a, is or what it involves is a similar cutting away of so much, which, which you've used to define you as yes. a person. So, you know, and, and this, if I had two knives in my hand that were going to do this cutting away, one of these knives is a question, who am I? And the other one is a knife called, am I aware? Okay. Mm. So I often ask people, who are you? And they normally tell me their name. And I'll point out that, you know, you're not your name. I know that is your name, yeah. but... You know, you were you before you knew that name, even maybe before you were given the name. If you were given a different name, you'd still be you, correct? And they'll say yes. Um, often people kind of tap their chest. So, you know, this is, is, is me. You know, I, I'm a body. I exist here. You know, <clears throat> um, I met a guy recently who, well, tragically for him, had, had been blown up in Afghanistan and had lost both legs and an arm and his nose and, 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 you know, was in a very, very bad state or ill bit. He was walking without crutches on his metal legs and quite an incredible guy. Yeah. But this guy, and he was there with friends of his, this guy to all accounts was exactly the same. You know, he was intact. Yeah. He was the same person, the same humor, the same, jokes he'd obviously was a special guy to have dealt with it all that way but our next kind of stop beyond the body is thought mm. you know and when you kind of start digging into thought 
and obviously this is where the whole mindfulness kind of thing has gone which is fascinating but is from an outside perspective it kind of looks like it's getting so broad it's gonna it's gonna collapse under its own weight unless unless someone adds some definition to it yeah but if you kind of pay attention to thoughts which obviously you do as a therapist because people come in and tell you about their thoughts when you really look it's like well you have no idea what you were thinking this time yesterday and you probably never will and never could you don't know what you're going to be thinking three thoughts from now you have no idea because thoughts just arise within you like a wave arising and falling you know that they, they, they can seem independent and powerful but they just rise and fall and our next stop is kind of thinking you know well i'm 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 i am my thinking i'm logical I, i'm rational you know my dog can catch a ball sometimes it brings it back it's like are you really your thinking With, without that are you less you mm. and anyway i could go on but this cutting away is what i'm trying to describe yeah yeah in terms of who am i if we persist there comes a moment where you realize that all thoughts, feelings, and perceptions can kind of be observed by you. Yeah. They rise and fall within you. And <clears throat> if we were to take that observer's position, the backdrop, if yeah. you like, yeah. then kind of like the screen that things pop up on, right? Labels that get put, eventually the person will say, well, it's kind of nothing, or I'm just aware. Yeah. Okay. And labels that have been put on this for the last five, six thousand years are things like awareness or I'm just kind of conscious of these things. And for some people, you know, Buddha would describe it in kind of negative terms, not in a negative way, but nothingness and emptiness. In fact, I've just got a fantastic book called A Philosophy of Emptiness. It's amazing. Yeah. So by taking that perspective... I've wondered if it's just super dissociation, but I found it to be to have a massively profound effect on distancing yourself from these things that you've been taken, you've taken to be yourself. Yeah. I'm this kind of person. I just do this. I feel this. Okay. Now, the parallels for me are kind of between CBT you know, encouraging you to look in a kind of, look at your thoughts and and responses in a kind of mechanical fashion, you know, and let's look at that. And I know full well that you you can be effective with that, but it's quite a discipline to um, unpack your thinking style in that fashion, all right? There's an equivalent, though, between that and some of the mindfulness-type exercises that, that are out there. Yeah. Okay? In the last couple of years, um, Joe Stemeyer introduced us to ACT, yep. Acceptance Commitment Therapy. And sometimes that gets thrown in with a bit of mindfulness as well. Okay, But it's slightly different. It's certainly different from traditional cognitive behavioral therapy in that rather than trying to teach people to better control their thoughts, to better control their feelings, to better control or, or, or their memories and these kind of private events... You'll really encourage them to just kind of notice, yeah, to just take the backdrop to, um, and again, they wouldn't put it in any kind of spiritual terms, but they'd still use 
the term awareness. Yeah. Okay, the part of you that is capable of awareness. They might call it an observing self. Okay, so if you if you encourage someone, and it can be very quick, it's a very that's why I call it a kind of direct path because yeah. becoming awareness or adopting that position of awareness in spiritual terms is a moment of awakening. Yeah, that's when people laugh out loud and experience a bit of freedom. Okay, they may go back to their job and lose sight of that, but in therapeutic terms, you are kind of doing the same thing. You're you're adopting the observing self's position, this position of awareness, and accepting really that that's all it is. You're, all these experiences, the only the only experience of them is the knowing of them. Right. Okay. And once you give someone an insight into that, you can then begin to encourage them to stay with the perspective of awareness or the observing self in kind of ever more challenging circumstances. So this is done not through meditation and not through, you know, emptying your mind and becoming super disciplined. It's done through a cutting away of what isn't and an acceptance that the knowing of these things is the only experience of them. And if you can maintain that perspective, they just, you remain intact. A bit like the guy who'd lost his limbs. Yeah. He was untouched. He was intact. Right. So strangely, following on from AI, and this is very much a personal view. I'm, I'm not, yeah. you know, suggesting this is what me and, and the team are thinking. Um, the, the, the kind of ongoing process post AI has been an ongoing shedding of skins yeah. <laughs> related to who am I? Okay. Yeah. And in terms of um, practical application of this in therapy, I give all my clients this perspective. Now I don't talk about it as acts or talk about it as this or mindfulness or anything else. Let's say I was referring to things they've been through. I'll just say, you know, throughout all the things you could tell me about this and where it began and the most traumatic time, throughout all of that, it was as if there was part of you that could observe that. Even in the midst of that situation, it's, just, it's as if this aspect of you knew this would end or was watching and observing mm. and, remains and, rema and remained and remains intact, untouched. And you can stay with it and da 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 da, da and so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah. So it's, I can't put it down, to be honest, Adam. It's becoming a bigger and bigger part of, of not just what I'm thinking about, but what I'm doing. And I'm now reflecting on a lot of the classic techniques, thinking, well, isn't that what I was doing? You know, maybe it wasn't the submodality change. <laughs> maybe it wasn't the posting like suggestion. Maybe it was the fact that dissociation is kind of tapping in to an observing self. It's not just a different perspective. It is who you are. No, this is what it is sure. to be human. Yeah. So I'll stop there because I'll start to I mean, quite mad. <laughs> but, quite but quite the yeah. contrary. I mean, I mean, wow, some some really fascinating insight there. And I mean, I mean, I 
I have contributed minimally to this week's professional discussion based upon the fact that I was I was almost adopting a client role while you were talking for the last 20 minutes um, I'm, I'm because you know wow and, and brilliant and, and I hope that lots of our listeners actually want to ask some questions about that stuff and and probe and learn more about that um, yeah because I, I, you know I think that's fascinating really yeah and again I'd really I know I've thrown a few things in there but I know you know, I know there's a, a, a drive at the moment. There's some fascinating research coupling hypnosis and CBT. And, yeah. and, and that's all good. Um, and I'd encourage people to look at that and, 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 and use some of those techniques. But there's this growing body of people that are into kind of mindfulness and, and this and that. And as I say, it's, it's fascinating. But I'd, I'd encourage people to identify the difference between CBT and ACT. Yeah. And I'd encourage people to identify the differences between mindfulness and non-duality. And there is crossover. Yeah. Um, and you'll find, uh, you know, there are a plethora of teachers out there um, on, on this kind of wagon. Some of them will, you know, be more spiritual than others. And some of them will even use the God word now and again. There are others who are completely on a, on a, on a non-spiritual, non-God related kind of path saying exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, and I, I just encouraging you to look at it because it's actually very simple and it's not the the process is one of inquiry rather than meditation. It's one of cutting away rather than addition. And it's for me, it's, made sense of all these wonderful terms like nothingness and awareness and even oneness yeah because right next door to nothingness is fullness is is the fact that everything arises within your awareness so check it out and um a book if you you know perhaps going yeah. on a holiday Please. that i i Literally, I've, I've been reading this, this this week, but it's awesome. It's by Gay Watson, and it's called A Philosophy of Emptiness. And it's just like seven massive essays. I mean, how do you even begin writing a book on emptiness? You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> what is it? But it's, it's really, really cool. Um, and if you want to kind of hear people talking about this subject, um, there's a guy on a slightly more kind of um, Buddhist side of things, I guess, even though it, 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 it crosses all boundaries, there's a guy called Rupert Spira, S-P-I-R-A, who is one of the most sort of articulate on, on the subject. Um, there's a guy, I know a few people who are actually sort of going to see his lectures, who talks about it in sort of less spiritual terms, um, called Jeff Foster. Yeah. Um, but have a listen and, and, and see what you make yeah. of it. Read, you know, read the wiki pages and um, check it out. But it, yeah. I say it's it's I'm totally gripped and it's made sense of so much of kind of what I've been doing and so much of, you know, the the hippie nonsense I never really let go of. Well, I think there's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think lots of lots of the things that you've talked about, you know, would um, um, absolutely tend to make very good. Uh, very good bedfellows uh, for, for for aspects of of things I think that that a lot of people are are engaged in um, and doing and so on. Um, yeah. um, um, simply because of where we're at with time, Anthony, <laughs> yeah. Anthony Jacqueline, um, um, you know, 
brilliant brilliant thank you so much for coming and being a part of this and sharing so much and being so generous and giving um today um thank you thanks adam and the only thing i haven't spoken about was your fantastic book on self-hypnosis i've now read it i i genuinely believe it's one of the most important books on hypnosis per se not just self-hypnosis and, and a big fat review will arrive when i get oh. the time it's really 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 uh fantastic so oh yeah well, you're very well kind you're very kind thank you very much um, okay. um anthony jackwin thank you cheers adam goodbye Ah, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Um, I found myself listening in uh, instead of actually engaging in an active fashion in the discussion. Um, I suppose many people would think that uh, an, an occupational hazard in our field. Anyway, awesome stuff. This week's hypnosis fact of the week then. Hypnosis is not a sleep-like state, according to Banyer, 1991 piece of research. Many people think hypnosis is similar to being asleep, when it is nothing of the sort, but of course you all knew that. Um, as you will already know, hypnosis requires you to be engaged and focused. Hypnosis is also not the same as relaxation. Again, Banyer in 1991 wrote about, um, writes about and builds upon her earlier work from the 1970s um, with Ernest Hilgard, whereby um, she and they showed that by having a client exercise vigorously for a period of time prior to a hypnosis session, the client could still be hypnotized but would not be at all relaxed. In fact, they would be alert and focused and have a heart rate and pulse that was very active. A client undergoing relaxation training in any form of psychotherapy would not gain the benefits of the relaxation in the same way, making the two quite, quite different. There you have it then, this week's fact of the week. Hypnosis is not a sleep-like state and not the same as relaxation. And there's evidence to, su to, to, to support that. Now, um, if you want a reminder of our ongoing competition, do go and listen to either of the previous two editions of Hypnosis Weekly and keep tuned for uh, me using that special word. Or perhaps I used it today even. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming the son of Dave Elman, Colonel Larry Elman and his wonderful, lovely wife, Cheryl. We shall be discussing the enduring legacy and ongoing relevance of Dave Elman's work in what is a very lively episode with a great deal of laughter in it. I have many more exciting guests here in future weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in our discussions today, along with any other related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks go again to the extraordinary Anthony Jackwin. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.